welcome to welcome to Dispatch Live. We've got a, a great show lined up tonight. Uh, hope we're not taking uh, too many viewers away from the the event with Steve and Jonah in Denver uh, happening at the same time. So we're kind of cross cross pollinating here. Um, but we're glad that if if you joined us. Uh, that you're here watching. Um, so we're going to talk a little bit about uh, our dear friend Tucker Carlson and and his um, uh, January 6th revisionism. We're going to move a little bit to the D.C. crime bill that uh, President Joe Biden decided to uh, help Senate Republicans overturn. And then we'll move a little bit to CPAC, which David and I both attended uh, last weekend. Lots of fun and and end with some 2024 wrap up um with answering viewer questions plenty along the way I, I should have done this at the beginning i'm declan garvey joined by david drucker and audrey Falberg. um david so, m drucker <laughs> david m drucker everybody in the office knows I'm a, I'm a i'm a total diva about my middle initial so that's just the way it goes this is how that's how Harry Truman got the S. You know, which presidents do we decide get the get the right. initial? They have to they have to um, make us think about it. So, um, David, I'll, I'll I'll go to you first. Could you kind of summarize a little bit about what uh, what we've been waiting for? Obviously, Kevin McCarthy's House Speaker provided Tucker Carlson um, and and his Fox News producers access to over forty thousand hours of security footage uh of the january 6th riot and we've just kind of been in a limbo waiting for them to comb through that and come out with with an alternative narrative of of what happened that day so that started yesterday uh i believe that he will uh he will be releasing more footage uh today on, on uh, tonight on his show uh we can't be watching that while we're talking here but um what what were what did he put forth yesterday and kind of what are your initial reactions so I'm going to take a drink first because <laughs> in order to deal with this, this topic, you've you've got to you've got to have at least one drink. Look, um, I, I think you kind of said it there, Declan, in your intro, and that we were waiting for Tucker Carl Carlson to emerge with his alternative narrative to the January 6th riots at the U.S. Capitol. Um, what is really interesting, well, there are a number of things that are sort of interesting, but at the end of the day, it's a really easy, predictable story. As reporters, we, of course, want access to scoopy information before any of our competitors. So uh, if Tucker Carlson found a particular way to convince House Speaker Kevin McCarthy to let him have all this stuff first, find more power to him. And I mean that sincerely, like, I don't begrudge that. I mean, if, if if the speaker's office would have called me and said, hey, Drucker, we're giving you and the dispatch as much time as you need, spread it around. You've got boiling frogs, you've got the morning dispatch, you've got dispatch politics, have at it. I mean, we would have said yes, and we would have taken it. I think the issue here is we know that Tucker Carlson has been a skeptic, or at least talked skeptically about what happened on January 6th, 2021. Um, uh, in contravention of all of the evidence we have seen, uh, video evidence, testimony, um, in committee comments on the record in front of cameras and in front of reporters from members of Congress, Republican and Democrat who were there that day and basically had to flee for their lives, literally fled for their lives. And so, uh, what Carlson ended up talking about Monday and what I'm sure he's talking about now 
is that after seeing all of this footage that nobody else has seen, he has now discovered that up is down, black is white, and nothing as it is as it seems. But you know, my answer to that is is let's just say for the sake of argument that since we haven't seen the video footage yet that he has seen, I mean, we haven't, the public hasn't, um, let's just say that he found hours and hours of footage of people that appear to be sightseeing. Now, why they were sightseeing that day in a manner that actual sightseers don't sightsee, we'll just put that aside, right? Why they were entering the building through entrances that sightseers don't get to enter. We can put that aside. Why they didn't go through the magnometers and, and the x-ray machines that even reporters and staff with badges have to go through. We'll just put that aside. Let's just say that he found hours and hours of evidence of people that appear to be peacefully sightseeing. Fine. It doesn't take away from the hours and hours of footage we saw of violence and people breaking into the building and and targeting law enforcement and forcing high-ranking members of the United States government, as well as low-ranking members of the United States government, to literally hunker down and flee for their lives. Right. And so I don't really think that one has anything to do with the other. And I think that he's naturally going to say, my video is better than your video, or my video is somehow true and the other video is somehow manufactured. But so what, Declan? It gets us back to the original point. We knew he was coming out with an alternative version of this. Um, and it's just not surprising, but ultimately doesn't take away from what we already know, right? And I'll, I'll leave it at this one final point. This is especially salient, I think, for somebody like, like Tucker and people uh, who tend to agree with him. After the George Floyd murder, there were hundreds, if not thousands, of peaceful protests around the country protesting racism and everything else. That does not mean that the deadly riots and looting by criminals and people taking advantage of the George Floyd murder and advantage of the peaceful protest did not happen. They happened in Portland, in Washington, in Los Angeles, all over the place. There was looting and burning and rioting, Minneapolis. It happened, and just because a lot of the peace, the protests were peaceful, doesn't mean that those things didn't happen. Right. And that, I mean, that became a meme on, on the right, as you, you mentioned, um, you know, the mostly peaceful protest kind of canard that you saw on a lot of um, headlines and, and, and cable news chirons and what have you at the time, it seems like kind of the flip, the flip side of that. I mean, I, I came into this, I naturally curious person. I wanted to see, uh, what I, I didn't have high hopes for for what Tucker was going to put out, but I wanted to see what he had, and I and I just came away. I mean, again, maybe he's on the TV right over here, uh, releasing the the equivalent of the Watergate tapes. Then, and we're just late to it. But what he put out last night, it it really was uh, kind of a nothing burger in 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 terms of he focused on one particular uh, rioter. This is the the guy who's become known as QAnon shaman was wearing the the funny hat and the horns and um and said and showed evidence that for part of the time that he was in the capital the police were walking with him and and escorting him around okay yes i i i don't think that's um the revelation that that he thinks it is one Chansley, this the the QAnon shaman 
was, I think he was sentenced to 41 months in prison for obstructing a federal proceeding is, is the, and that's kind of, that's on the very low end of the federal uh, mandatory minimum sentencing guidelines for, for that. And, and the police have come out and said, yes, we, we did not try to uh, attack or pin down all these people. We knew we were uh, outnumbered. We knew we were outmanned. And so we need to uh, kind of do uh, control uh, or, or, or just try and deescalate the situation as much as they can. That's what this showed. I, I don't think, you know, that the other big bombshell was that it wasn't just Josh Hawley who was running away from the mob. It was all senators, which like, sure, the, the January 6th committee probably selectively edited some of this stuff for political gain. Absolutely. Um, but it just doesn't necessarily mean that that it's it's the point that it makes. So, Audrey, I want to turn uh, to you a little bit in terms of the reaction that we saw from lawmakers on the Hill today to this Senate Republicans almost unanimously pretty uh, forward in condemning this, saying that they didn't really want to have anything to do with it. Uh, the House having a little bit of a different reaction. They have to deal with Kevin McCarthy a little bit more regularly. Um, is is this good for Republicans? Should they be want to be relitigating some of this stuff? No, of course not. Um, yeah, I'm <laughs> glad you bring this up. I was going to uh, chat about this real quick. I mean, I'm curious to hear what you guys think uh, McCarthy's purpose and kind of even giving this to Carlson was in the first place. I mean, he's keenly aware of early should be that, you know, his majority runs through really centrist districts. Some of his, um, you know, in New York, for example, Anthony D'Esposito won in a D plus 14 district. Does he really want to be getting asked questions about Jan January 6th, like uh, two months after he was sworn in? So no, it doesn't seem particularly smart, but yeah, I mean, uh, McConnell today um, really, it was interesting to see his comments on the floor today. He said, quote, I want to associate myself entirely with the opinion of the chief and the Capitol Police about what happened on January 6th. It was a mistake, in my view, for Fox News to depict this in a way that's completely at variance with what our chief law enforcement official here at the Capitol thinks. McConnell is clearly over this, doesn't want to talk about January 6th anymore, just wants normal Republicans who aren't associated with the kind of Trump uh, January 6th revisionism. Um, really fo funny quote from Tom Tillis today, you know, a centrist GOP senator from North Carolina, excuse my language, but he said, quote, I think it's bullshit. Um, I mean, obviously he's going to say that, right? Um, but yeah, just kind of fascinating to see, um, you know, what, what McCarthy did there. Yeah. I mean, we, we had some House Republicans yesterday come out, say they want, uh, I, I think Mike Collins in Georgia as an example said, we need to free all the, all the January 6th political prisoners as a result of this tape. You have uh, a, just a couple minutes ago, Dan Crenshaw have a, a little bit of a, a different take. He told a reporter, it's real. It's definitely stupid to keep talking about this. What is the purpose of continuing to bring it up unless you're trying to feed Democrat narratives even further? Um, so I, I, there is a divide. I think we'll, we'll kind of see that continue to play out in the coming days. Uh, you'd think that the, the Republican Party would would kind of learn from the 2022 midterms that maybe embracing kind of this faction of the party and, and kind of letting them drive the conversation was a mistake. Um, but at the same time, I mean, David, the Tucker does not have the same uh, agenda or incentives as the institutional Republican party. You know, this is getting him attention. It's getting viewers. It's uh, he's very powerful, obviously, but you know, why do you, this relationship between McCarthy and, and Carlson, it's, it was strained. It probably still is. Um, why do you think he decided to, to give these tapes to him to, to start? 
So look, normally I love to speculate and I'm kind of in the business of, but yeah, I like to say often, like I'm kind of like a color commentator. I mean, I'm a reporter, but then when I'm an analyst, um, you know, I'm like a guy in the booth who never played quarterback, but knows how your footwork's supposed to be. And I start, you know, I start doing the replay with the, with the, with the, the TV writer and, and you know, this guy blocked here and you passed it there. But I, in this case, I really don't have, all I would have really is rank speculation, right? I mean, there's been some speculation uh, not corroborated in any sense that this is a deal that the speaker made with Marjorie Taylor Greene, the congresswoman from Georgia, um, in order to have in, as a part of a, a package of demands she had for his for supporting him for speaker. <laughs> Support was very uh, helpful to him, given how that vote went. Uh, but we really don't know. And and Speaker McCarthy, who I've known for a long time and covered since he was a freshman assemblyman in Sacramento in the legislature in California, hasn't really given an answer that made any sense. Uh, you know, one of the answers he gave under questioning was, uh, you know, uh, to reporters is, you know, aren't you all in the business of getting scoops? Don't you always want to be first? So why are you mad that somebody else is first? And what's the big deal? I think in today he told reporters that, uh, you know, different people have different points of view about what happened on January 6th. And I don't think he's really explained why it, look, it would be one thing I think would be easier to understand if he said, listen, you know, a lot of my members have different opinions about January 6th. A lot of the people in my party are skeptical about what happened on January 6th. They don't believe you guys, you know, the media, uh, you know, they don't even believe necessarily what they see on um, uh, media outlets that they you'd think that they would believe. So I'm going to release all of the tapes, all of the footage, everything you know, there's a lot that hasn't been released. Everybody now can look at it, make your own decision. You know, I know what I think happened, but here you go. Instead, he clearly made a decision to give the footage to somebody who has already talked about January 6th as something completely manufactured or, or purposely uh, misconstrued by people with a political agenda. Um, and, you know, he speaks as a truth teller and that's his style. So I can't, it's weird because, you know, if you look back about if you think back to how Kevin McCarthy, then the, the House Republican leader, the minority leader in the House talked about January 6th, he talked about it in as exactly what it was. And he was among the Republicans that were rather angry with President Trump for how he stoked the uh, the rioters by telling them the election was stolen and telling them they should go to the Capitol um, and, and so it just doesn't make, you know, it doesn't, it's not like Andy Biggs made the decision to give it to Tucker Carlson, you know, the, the congressman, the trouble line congressman from Arizona, who, who's a conspiracy theorist in his own right, um, it, that we all understand that. I actually don't really understand why Kevin McCarthy did this. I'm sure there was a very specific reason, but in this case, I don't want to speculate because it, it I can think of nothing other than something that would impugn his motives or sound very crass. And it's not something I should do without reporting to back it up. Yeah, I I think we probably spent enough time on this. We can we can move on. But just to to uh, give you guys a little behind the scenes look, we're writing about this in TMD tomorrow. And um, I sent an email this morning to Kevin McCarthy's office asking 
Uh, on the evening of January 6, 2021, Speaker McCarthy called the, quote, violence, destruction and chaos that lawmakers saw that day unacceptable, undemocratic and un-American. He also said it was the saddest day he'd ever had as a member of Congress. Does he still think so? Uh, and nine hours later, I have not heard back. So uh, was, <laughs> I was not I was not expecting to. But uh, when you see the line tomorrow, Speaker McCarthy's office declined to comment. That was the. Uh, that was the the reporting that went into that. Um, so, moving on, Audrey, we uh, we had a, an interesting reversal last week with with President uh, Joe Biden saying that he was would not veto a bill uh, passed primarily by Senate Republicans uh, that would overturn a uh, a recent law enacted by uh, the D.C. City Council that um, would have reduced some uh, maximum sentences for for carjackings, robberies, other other things, and and kind of gave, I think, as we can see from the Democratic response here, a little bit of a, the, the wrong perspective uh, that that Biden wants to to put forth on on crime and the and the party's agenda on crime. Uh, could you talk a little bit more about kind of the the machinations behind that and and how that's playing out on the Hill? Sure. Yeah, this is a really interesting move. You guys had a great report in TMD on Monday, I think it was. Um, yeah. So. Last month, uh, 173 House Democrats voted against the House Republicans who, you know, tried to overturn this um, D.C. City Council, pretty controversial um, criminal code. Um, D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser um, had actually tried to veto it, but she was overridden. And so Republicans were like, you know, we're going to overturn this just to signal that we're being tough on crime. Um, House Democrats acting under the assumption that Biden would kind of side with them, vote against it, um, you know, saying we support D.C. home rule, um, D.C. statehood, obviously. Um, and then, you know, Thursday, Biden says, actually, never mind. Um, we, I'm going to side with Republicans on this. So that came as a real shock to House Democrats um, who... Uh, are going to have to run on this in November 2024, defend that vote, which can be tough. I mean, Republicans spent the entire last cycle hitting Democrats on inflation, gas prices and crime. Um, really, really worked in New York, obviously. Um, you know, that message resonates with suburban voters. Um, now people like Mary Peltola from Alaska um, and Hillary Skolton, who just won um, Peter Marzel district in West Michigan, they're going to have to, you know, defend that vote on the campaign trail. I actually caught up with both of them just now and they said that, you know, Biden probably should have warned them that he was going to reverse that before he did. Um, but, you know, on the flip side, um, Senator Schumer said that he's going to side with Republicans and this gives some Senate Democrats who are up for re-election in 2024, like Joe Manchin, West Virginia, um, you know, the opportunity to uh, project a tough on crime message that they can run and run and ads. But that's just kind of my takeaway for now. I'm curious to hear y'all's thoughts. Yeah, I mean, David, the this is obviously a a stark departure from where the Democratic Party was even a year ago. Definitely two or three years ago. Um, it kind of it an interesting juxtaposition. We're seeing uh, that there were these these riots in Atlanta, right outside of a, a police training facility that they're building down there. Earlier this week, uh, you don't. I think that was the kind of thing that if that had happened two or three years ago, you'd see a lot of prominent Democrats either kind of whitewashing it or even embracing kind of what's happening down there and the the anti-police sentiment that you're seeing. Not nearly the same case now. Obviously, it's tradition for presidents to kind of try and tack to the center ahead of the re-election bid. Is that what's happening here or, or what are the other shifting political winds? 
No, I think so. I mean, to me, this is the most interesting political development of the year. Now, granted, it's only March 7th. Uh, it's clearly to be, I mean, to me, the most interesting thing politically to happen. It's been interesting, unexpected since the midterm elections when, you know, we thought Republicans were going to at least win a, a good chunk of seats, even if it wasn't a tsunami. And here Democrats gain a Senate seat and, and barely miss holding on to the House. Totally unexpected. I was not expecting this, you know, for the Democratic base. Uh, D.C. statehood has become a really big issue. They've tried to get it done a couple of different times. Um, and even though President Biden has repeatedly said, I don't support defunding the police, I've never supported it. In fact, I want to increase the amount of federal resources, which is under his, you know, his partial control, that we can send to police departments across the country. Um, and that's been a priority of his. And he said it over and over again. Um, it was still really unexpected for me to see him join with a House Republican resolution. I mean, that's why this happened, because Republicans did win the House um, and decided he was going to support, uh, not get in the way of a resolution to overturn this D.C. criminal code. Now, full disclosure, I live in the District of Columbia, um, and we do a lot of residents in the District of Columbia, aside from whatever the statistics may be, and I haven't looked at them, but I will tell you, we feel like there is more crime than there was a few years ago. That's how me and a lot of my neighbors feel. We feel less safe, not so unsafe that I want to leave or move, and I don't plan to. I still think it's a great place to live, but there is more crime. Americans across the country in many communities of all backgrounds feel like there is more crime. They feel unsafe. So some people might say, well, of course Biden's going to do this. I mean, you know, but it wasn't a guarantee that he would do it. It's the clearest sign yet that he's running for re-election. And it's the first time I've really seen him triangulate and do something that the base of his party uh, didn't want him to do. And also, he did it in a way that made a really big show, right? Now, maybe he just woke up one day and said, oh, wait, they're doing that? <laughs> oh, you know, I would have told House Democrats. I just forgot. I didn't mean to. I mean, part of me wonders if they said, you know what we do here? We're going to make a really big show of this. We didn't give them a heads up, but we're going to help our vulnerable senators. And it's going to show that we're willing to go against the base and go against some of our progressive members on crime, a really important issue. Just happened to come right after Lori Lightfoot gets dumped in Chicago because for, among other reasons, the crime problems there, uh, given who uh, beat her uh, and is headed to the run the mayoral runoff in Chicago. Um, and so watching Biden triangulate made me think of what the last two years might have looked like had Republicans held the Senate. Had they not lost those two Georgia runoffs on January 5th, 2021, uh, you, you could imagine Joe Biden the last two years telling House Democrats who were in the majority, I, I can't help it. I got to deal with Mitch McConnell. He's the majority leader. What do you want me to do? Right. So now you have a Republican House. They send what is a, by the way, a privileged resolu resolution. So the Senate has to take it up. It can't be filibustered. And now not only does Biden get uh, some bona fides for him to, to go after swing voters, but John Tester in Montana, Joe Manchin in West Virginia, I don't know what Sherrod Brown in Ohio is going to do, but you've seen Patty Murray um, uh, say she's going to support this. A lot of Democrats are going to support this because they've been around long enough to know that when people don't feel safe, you don't give them reason to believe that you don't plan to do anything about it. Yeah, I 
Oh, go ahead, quick, just real quick, I'm just thinking of the TV ads for House Democrats. The NRCC can now run ads against Hillary Scolton saying Hillary Scolton is to the left of Joe Biden on crime issues. Right. And by the way, Audrey, by the, by the way, you know, this whole thing, I get that they're frustrated and upset. And normally, you know, political parties, you know, you're supposed to work together and all of that. But wait, so they would have supported the Republican resolution if Biden had said it was OK Right. They, no, exactly. You know, if they think that there's something wrong with with undermining what we what is known as home rule, right? DC didn't always get to run its own affairs. Congress still now they do now, but Congress has oversight and the ability to do things like that. But if they didn't think this crime bill, which the DC City Council is now withdrawing after they overrode their mayor's veto, if they thought it was a bad idea, they should have voted for it anyway and pressured Joe Biden to go along with them. And now they're complaining. I mean, that's just kind of rich. I get are, why that it's rich. They are complaining. There was a quote, I think, from an anonymous House Democrat in Axios yesterday that they are all, quote, rip-roaring pissed at Biden uh, for, for making Ooh. them walk the plank on this. So, <laughs> yeah, it's... Um, we got a question from Tom Fain uh, asking kind of what what the actual substance of the the D.C. Council effort was and and the Republicans effort to oppose it. I, I wish Esther was on the call uh, right now. She wrote the item about it. Yes. Uh, earlier this week for TMD. But I believe it the bill itself from the D.C. City Council is being slightly misrepresented in terms of uh, what it would actually do with a lot of stuff to to modernize the, the criminal code. I think it's would reduce the maximum sentence for carjacking from like 40 years to 24 years. It's, it's more, I think, and certainly from, from Biden's perspective, it's more about the message that they're trying to send. Um, and that as David, you, you were just talking about the, what he can say and kind of how he can message on this rather than the specifics of the bill itself, no matter anything that could be portrayed as soft on crime right now, when, you know, I'm I'm from Chicago. Lori Lightfoot got 17% of the re-election vote uh, last week, in large part for for this exact thing. Um, you just don't want to touch any of this with a 10-foot pole, regardless and, of the specifics. And by the way, I mean, you know, the point about this and how voters feel, which is what politics is, there has been an uptick in carjackings in the District of Columbia, and they've been violent. So to specifically sing, you know, I, I understand you may want to lower sentences here and raise them here and maybe give, I mean, there's lots of, we can talk academically about criminal justice reform. By the way, it was the Republicans and President Trump who signed a big federal criminal justice reform bill that reduced sentences for federal prisoners. So, you know, before the pandemic and things changed, um, it was the Republicans going after criminal justice reform and, and taking the lead for a while. But when you have an uptick in carjackings in the district and you still choose to lower the sentence and, you know, the way regular people are going to look at this is, OK, you lower it from 40 to 24. Well, I mean, you know, 24, that's a long time. The time you're done with parole and this and how do you, you know, adjust sentences, you know, it sends it can send a message to criminals that you're not going to be punished as much. But it definitely sends a message to citizens, to voters that you don't take this problem seriously. We weren't talking about carjackings in the district three years ago. We weren't. We are now. I think yeah. one, one quick thing there. Um, if you look at the crime st statistics, robberies and bur burglaries are down slightly, but homicides are up and, you know, yeah, car auto theft is up. And I mean, just 
this statistic was really just wild to me. In 2021, they're around, I think, like 160 um, rim and uh, tire thefts in D.C. And last year, that figure was more than 600. And um, as you guys wrote in TMD, it's not uncommon to walk around the city and just see a car with no tires. Uh, that happens. Yeah, I, I don't know if that's a D.C.-specific thing. I did not see it growing up. But it these people, they go down city streets here in D.C. and they basically replace your tires with milk crates. And they yeah. take the tires, and and then then you're just kind of like, all right, I guess I'm not driving anywhere ever. <laughs> um, so the penalty on that should be 120 years specifically. But that's something you can see in something that goes viral. So yeah, yeah, feel that. Uh, we can we can move to CPAC, but first a couple uh, listener questions. We've got one from John asking David M, uh, what are you drinking? I am drinking a cognac. It's a Maison Rouge. And I'm really excited. There's a great liquor store on Capitol Hill called Schneider's. And when I was writing my book, I basically was drinking this stuff more than I was drinking water because I decided <laughs> if I was going to write a book, I wasn't going to smoke a pipe in the house because, I mean, you never get that out of the walls. But I was going to drink brandy. That was like my big thing. And I really like this stuff. And it's $29 a bottle. And I have very expensive taste. So I, I'm getting off really cheap here for stuff that I really like. And that's what editors are for. Uh, Kevin asks, "What is on Declan's face?" These are these are glasses, Kevin. Um, <laughs> they help me see far away. Minus two point two five prescription. Um, all right, uh, we were we were at CPAC, uh, David, you and I over the weekend. Yeah. Audrey, you you lucked out, um, although you yeah, we, you were at a different conference, so we, we can talk we about drew, that. We drew straws. Um, <laughs> who had to cover? Tip to Edgar. Edgar found this app where you know. I joked to him, let's draw straws to see who covers Trump because uh, we've both done it and you know, whatever. It's there's value to it, but but we figured all right, we only need one of us. And you know, he found an app where you literally go and draw electronic straws. <laughs> he drew the short electronic straw. That's uh, he uh, he sent a, a picture of that to to me and and uh, he told his his wife and. She said, "Oh, that's so great! It could be Daddy Daughter Day. You can take your you can take your baby to go see Trump and and leave me alone for the day." Um, did not end up happening, but um, we were. I mean, what what struck me the most, and this is not necessarily an original uh, take, is just how thoroughly Trumpified the the conference was. This was I was not really in D.C. when when CPAC was not a mostly Trump phenomenon, but. I mean, even this year, they the, what struck me before he spoke, the CPAC official announcers, the PA announcers announced him as the next president of the United States. They're obviously taking a, a side in, in the coming primary. He won the straw poll, I think, like 70 percent to 20 percent over DeSantis. Uh, David, is that the same vibe you got? And, and does it mean anything or is this just his conference now? Well, I think it's partially it's just his conference now. Look, I think what's really interesting for people that haven't been to CPAC <clears> or covered it, you know, I've, I've been covering CPAC for at least 15 years and probably in the last 10 years, maybe I've missed one or two, uh, but that's it. I was in Florida and Orlando the past couple of years when they moved during the pandemic uh, because the, the regulations were easier for big gatherings. Um, and, 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 and for many years, yeah, you know, the conference and its attendees might have its favorites. Uh, there were years when you know Ron Paul had a big contingent and would win the straw poll. Um, there's always been that element of who's hot right now and who do the who does who do movement conservatives like right now. Um, 
And it's natural, too, when there's a Republican president uh, in office for that person to be particularly popular among the people that are attending CPAC. Uh, but what this conference really struck me as uh, is as a is a gathering now specifically for Trump. And I actually think it hurt the conference in that if you weren't somebody who's a major Trump supporter or you are somebody that is might support Trump, you're not sure yet, you're shopping around, there really wasn't as much to see, right? You weren't going to see a huge roster of Republican speakers, and I think many of them uh, stayed away because it was a Trump show. They didn't want to have to lose the straw poll. And then in, in this way, plausibly, they can say, well, I didn't show up anyway. Um, and so, look, even if if you support Trump's brand of populism, even if you support Trump, the conference just wasn't that interesting because it had less of a variety of conservative views and less of a variety of, of prominent conservatives across the spectrum. You know, Nikki Haley and Mike Pompeo were, were received politely in the hall. Um, but even for Trump's speech, it wasn't the best attended CPAC Trump speech I've ever seen. And, you know, so, I mean, that's clearly the direction the organizers wanted to take it. Uh, but, you know, I think long term for the health of the conference, you want to have it be a place where the breadth of the movement, the breadth of Republicans feel like there's something there for them. Uh, we got a we got a note from where where is it uh ben ben asked uh needs to see cpac picks or it didn't happen um i can provide some here i ran into mike lindell ran into jair bolsonaro uh the former president of brazil uh here's steve bannon jonah's nemesis sebastian gorka so i could you know, it's a real who's who of uh, prominent. By the way, every time officials, every, uh, Declan, every time I pass by uh, Sebastian Gorka, all I could think of was Jonah doing his best Sebastian Sebastian Gorka impersonation, <laughs> and I can't do it as well as Jonah. But that's all I would think every time, and I yeah. little. I wanted to do it to his face. I did not. I did not. I, I want to be respectful. The, the relief factor commercials that he does on Fox News. <laughs> Yes. Um, we got a couple. Was there any concern about uh, the match slap accusations at CPAC? No. Um, no, that no. Did not did not come up. Um, I will say I didn't find match slap to be as present as he usually is no. in the halls, um, in the hall itself. He has always been omnipresent, meaning, you know, for those years, many years when I would write the what does CPAC mean or gee, CPAC's changing or whatever, you could always find Matt. And, and there's nobody knows more about the conference and he has been a part of the conservative movement for, for decades now. And he just, I, he, I saw him just once um, and it was near where the green rooms are for the speakers. Cause I was down back there interviewing somebody. He just, he wasn't as, as publicly present at the conference in my view, as I'm used to. Seeing. Yeah. I, I, Audrey, one, we, we have a question from Ted. Are you in a closet? Um, yeah, I'm in our um, intern prison cell in the office. No, I'm kidding. I'm on <laughs> Capitol Hill right now, where I was. Can't tell people about that. <laughs> where I was interviewing House Democrats about the crime bill. Um, yeah, it's like a soundproof um, little room thing where you can take calls, but it looks kind of creepy from uh, your perspective. So I'm sorry. 
That is uh, no. I think I think we've got a couple questions from from people about it, so they'll be they'll be glad to know you're on the scene. Um, Audrey, you spoke at kind of the 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 counter uh, CPAC this weekend. It's from a group called Principles First that sprung up, I think, right before the pandemic um, to kind of counter message what what CPAC was doing and what it what it had become. Um, kind of has been branded as a, a never Trump conference or or kind of um, that style. Can you tell us a little bit about what you saw this weekend? Sure. Um, slight correction, did not speak at conducted. Oh, sorry. Interviews. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, was very careful about that. Yeah, I interviewed um, Adam Kinzinger on stage. But yeah, just quick to recap, it's kind of a, it's, uh, it was third, the third annual um, Principles First Summit, which is kind of an, a gathering of about 300 kind of never Trumper conservatives. Declan, I think you covered it. It's first year. I covered it last year. Um, was not able to hold, uh, attend the whole conference, but um, interviewed Adam Kinzinger on stage just about the state of the GOP um, and his country first pack, um, which endorsed some kind of never Trumper um, conservatives, Republicans this past cycle, but a lot of Democrats also. Uh, I guess just the main takeaway was that, you know, the never Trumpers, um, you know, Barbara Comstock was there. She's actually my childhood congresswoman. Um, you know, Bill Crystal was there. John Kasich spoke. Um, very just still pessimistic about the state of the GOP. Um, you know, most of them define themselves as homeless Republicans um, in general. It just kind of, it's interesting seeing how a lot of these folks kind of are charting their you know, path forward if there really is any in the GOP. Um, a lot of them have really kind of more closely aligned themselves with Democrats because they're so not excited about uh, the direction of the GOP. So it's kind of interesting um, to see that. But Speaking of direction of the GOP, we can kind of move a little bit to 2024. There was an interesting split screen this weekend. I mean, what we just talked about with Trump giving the the speech that he gave at, at CPAC, hour and 45 minutes. Uh, I was there for all hour and 45 minutes of it. Um, and Ron DeSantis was kind of, uh, I believe Saturday night, he was get, speaking at an event in Dallas. And then on Sunday, he spoke uh, at the Reagan Library out in California, kind of traveling around the country doing kind of presenting a different picture or or, or vision for the Republican Party. Obviously, we've talked a lot about Nikki Haley and Tim Scott and some of the other folks that are uh, traversing the, the country right now. But David kind of what were your initial thoughts, one, with, with Trump's speech and kind of what he's signaling that he's going to run on uh, and and what DeSantis did to kind of counterpose that? Well, look, Trump, you know, is, Trump plays the hits. So there's really not much new in the Trump show, except it's, it's gotten a little uh, darker or more aggressive. And I, I don't say that to be pejorative. It's just if you if you think about um, his inaugural address in 2017, um, and he talked about American carnage and, you know, and, and there were people that were critical of that. There were people that were pleased with it. Uh, but, you know, he was talking in his speech at CPAC that, you know, I'll be your retribution. Essentially, if you feel like you've been wronged by the culture and society and, and anybody else, um, I'll be your tool of revenge. And so it's just it's just become darker um, and and more more aggressive but it's not new it's not like wait what where'd this guy come from he was the happy warrior i mean that's just trump in person can be very charming um and 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 light in a way but but this is trump's public uh political persona you know what what ron DeSantis is is doing and, and you know ron DeSantis is a different sort of politician in that he doesn't 
Trump, whatever you think of Donald Trump, has a lot of uh, personality and a lot of charisma. You may not like to what end it, it appeals, and it may not be a charisma that's appealing to you, but he has a presence and a charisma about him. Um, and even and sometimes if you put aside what he's saying or talking about, he, he can be kind of funny. Uh, maybe I've covered too many of his speeches, but I, you know, I'm trying to give an even-handed assessment of what kind of politician he is. And there's a reason why a lot of people flock to his rallies. Um, again, a lot of people don't like it, but a lot of people just find it entertaining. They keep going back and back and back to see this guy put on his his comedy show it, from their perspective. Uh, Ron DeSantis is a more conventional politician, as most are. He focuses heavily on how he's governed in Florida, the laws he has passed in Florida. I think the implication is because he doesn't yet make direct comparisons to Donald Trump. He will talk about President Biden. That's safe territory for him, obviously. But he's basically saying if you want somebody who offers what Trump offers but actually wants it to get done, here's the menu of things that I have accomplished for you. And he talks about how he's taken on corporate America and big tech and big media and you know, everybody else that's big and bad and awful. And actually, with the help, of course, of a Republican legislature that does almost anything he wants, um, helped him get a lot of things done. But by the way, that's appealing to a lot of people. They feel like he was out front on COVID. He talks a lot about that in terms of loosening restrictions, opening schools. It is something that he did do. He was ahead of the curve on that. It turned out not to be you know, problematic from the perspective of people living in Florida and many people around the country. And so now, and I've talked to people in Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, where I keep in touch with them regularly, you have activists and operatives just champing at the bit to get onto his campaign. And they're kind of waiting. They're not necessarily opposed to anybody else, but they really see in him a fresh face who will continue Trump's agenda and possibly more effectively, a more effective culture warrior, if you will. And that's kind of what he's saying, that, you know, he doesn't say it this way, but but essentially the split screen is Trump and effective Trump, although I suspect an effective Trump who would abide by the results of an election he loses. And I think I will tell you a lot of professional Republicans and Republican donors do think that. They think he may be the best way to push aside Trump because the base likes DeSantis. He's not a throwback to the Reagan era. He's not so-called establishment um, and so it's somebody they can get behind to push Trump aside without worrying that he's going to try and burn the whole thing down if it doesn't go his way. I think I I agree with a lot of what you what you just said. And uh, as as the assessment, I came away from from this weekend uh, I, the least confident I've been that uh, Trump will not get the nomination. I think that's kind of been my modus operandi for the past couple months is that he's um fading and uh kind of easing easing off of the scene not going to run a real campaign he's only held a couple events um but the the speech that he gave on saturday was and i've talked to a couple other people who've gone to a lot of them uh too that it was kind of the most energetic that he seemed honestly since before the 2020 election um the most upbeat and and i i think your your point about uh kind of being it being more of a comedy show is is spot on is that if you read the and i was having this debate with andrew egger our, our fellow colleague um because we were sitting right next to each other during it but that if you read a transcript of trump's speech you would have 
thought it was an incredibly dark, incredibly morose and and downtrodden outlook. But the way he delivers it, it it's almost like uh yeah, a comedy show or um upbeat and uh bringing bringing the crowd along and it, it was I, the, the room was not full um as as people have pointed out but it was not 50 percent. i'd say it's closer to like 75 80 um and we'll see i mean the, the 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 split screen to desantis going back to kind of more the traditional politician who has one joke that they say at the beginning of the speech and then they kind of go into the laundry list i'd Republican mo- voters might have gotten a taste for <laughs> for uh, the 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 non politician then, and it might be hard for them to go back. But um, we we have a question, Audrey. This one I'll I'll head your way. Um, will anyone follow Larry Hogan's lead in Maryland and drop out early? Uh, that's from Eric. And so, can you explain why he did what he did and why that's significant? So funny you mentioned that, Larry. We actually asked that same exact question in our editorial meeting on Monday. <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, Larry Hogan, who, um, you know, the former governor of Maryland, just finished up his most recent term, um, his long, you know, tease that he would run for president as kind of a normal Republican um who could win over suburban and independent voters. You know, Maryland's a pretty democratic state, right? Um, you know, moderate Republican voter with, or excuse me, governor with cross-party appeal. Um, but then, you know, he said, he finally announced that he's not going to challenge Trump and said, um, you know, I've thought about this for a while. I think it's time to move on from Donald Trump. Um, but basically, you know, the more people who jump into the field, the easier it is for Trump to uh, win the nomination. Um, so, yeah, in terms of whether or, not, uh, whether or not other people will follow suit, somebody brought up a good point in our meeting saying, well, I think it was Andrew, um, you know, maybe Sununu is sitting there thinking, um, well, if Larry Hogan's not going to run, then maybe that gives me another 1%. So my 3% can turn up to, uh, to 4%, right, of the Republican primary electorate. Um, I don't know. Yeah, that'll be really interesting to watch. I think if you're running for president, you're not really, um, you know, concerned about that kind of thing. So I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> David, obviously, we've, we've only got two non-Trump candidates formally in the race right now, Nikki Haley and Vivek Ramaswamy. Um, I guess if you want to count Perry Johnson, the third place finisher at <laughs> in the CPAC straw poll, he's, a, I think, a billionaire from Michigan. Um we're obviously waiting for Mike Pence to jump in the race, for Mike Pompeo to jump in the race, DeSantis, and and maybe a handful of others. Um, there's a lot of concern in kind of the the top Republican circles that we will have a, a repeat of 2016 where everybody's fighting for second place after Trump. And uh, by the time they finally figure that out, Trump, it's too late and Trump sails to the nomination with 40 percent of the vote. Do you think that we need or 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 that the the Republican Party needs to uh, be down to two candidates before the election or the the voting starts in Iowa for for a non-trump candidate to have any chance? Right. So that's, I think what Republicans themselves are trying to figure out. Uh, by the way, we interviewed um, uh, Governor Hogan in the latest dispatch uh, dispatch podcast, which, Will be available tomorrow. We will also tease that interview in the Dispatch Politics newsletter, which comes out again tomorrow because it's Wednesday. So you can hear more about what he had to say about why he uh, decided not to run and, and his assessment of this very question. 
I think that one of the reasons why you don't see a lot of candidates in the race yet is because they're all very cognizant of the fact that too many candidates gives it to Trump by default, right? Trump, in my estimation, is actually beatable, but you're going to have to take it from him. He won't fade. And so whether you're Chris Sununu or Mike Pompeo or Mike Pence, um, uh, Larry Hogan's made his decision, but there are others that have talked about running. They're all, uh, Ron DeSantis, Glenn Young and governor of Virginia, which we will have a piece in Dispatch Politics on him tomorrow. Um, they're all kind of trying to figure out what does this field look like? And if I get in, can I create space, right? Because they're not just looking at Donald Trump, they're looking at Ron DeSantis, they're looking at the polling and trying to figure out if there's room to take voters away. Is there? Can they create space or are they going to be relegated to this other lane? And if there are too many of them, are they going to end up um, just you know, fighting over crumbs while Trump just glides right past them. And so this is something that when I talked to Republican pollsters and I was talking to them uh, this this week, they they don't know yet. Right. In theory. Right. um, Nobody's support is sacrosanct. However, Trump has proven over time that depending on the state, He's got anywhere from 25 to 35 percent of of the committed Republican voters locked in, locked in. Now, that means he could lose a primary to one candidate by 65, 70 percent, 75 percent, depending on the state. But if you've got a bunch of people dividing that 65, 70 percent up into 20 percent chunks or 15 percent chunks, it doesn't quite work that way. They all know that. So I think what's happening is I think they're trying to see exactly how strong is Trump in June or April or May, exactly how strong is Ron DeSantis in you know April, May or June. When does DeSantis get in? Does he actually get in? I think if Ron DeSantis bowed out, you'd all of a sudden see some people deciding to rush in potentially. Right. So things like that. But they are cognizant of 2016. And even though Trump is not the same politician. He's no longer the outsider change agent he was. He is establishment. He is an incumbent retread. Uh, Granted, with more support than most incumbent retreads, but he's not the same. Yet, he has a lot of the same strength that he did. And so they're all trying to figure out how to do this in a way that opts to their benefit. The only exception, of course, is Nikki Haley, who's just decided to just go for it. Um, And we'll have to see if she ends up with any traction. Her events are good, but events are deceiving. People love to turn out in Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina to vet presidential candidates and enjoy the pageantry. Are they actually going to vote? I mean, that just depends. A really quick story. I love to tell the story that Chris Christie told me. In 2016, his wife's going door to door for him in New Hampshire. It was a family affair. Somebody invites uh, Mrs. Christie in the house. Oh, my God, I love your husband. He's amazing. He's wonderful. So you're going to vote for him, right? Oh, no, I'm voting for Mr. Trump, but I really hope your husband is attorney general. You know, they can like you and still vote somewhere else. So these things are are nuanced and sophisticated and voters, you know, just they, they do things sometimes that you wouldn't expect based on what you think you're seeing. Yeah, we we saw a, a 2024 version of that uh, last week. I think it was Brian Kilmeade on Fox and Friends was going traveling uh, through a Florida diner uh, looking for Ron DeSantis voters. And he went table to table asking, are you voting for Ron DeSantis? And 
they all said, no, probably Trump, <laughs> including <laughs> one wearing a Ron DeSantis shirt. So, um, you know, it, it, he does have, have a bond with, uh, with people. I'll, I'll combine two questions we got here. One from Ed, uh, asking if it's insane to think that pro-Trump forces could strategically flood the field to dilute, uh, kind of what we were talking about there. And then, um, from Ed, uh, is that if Trump is the nominee, who in their right mind would be his vice president? Um, we we I'll combine those two because we got a story in, in Axios this morning speculating uh, way too early, uh, doesn't have the, the nomination close to wrapped up, but speculating way too early about um, who would be a vice president for for Trump. And it, they highlighted four women, uh, Nikki Haley being one of them, Carrie Lake, Christy Noem. And I'm forgetting the fourth. This is my Rick Perry moment. Um, but Oops. Uh, sorry. Oops. Yes. What yes. he said. Oops. Yeah. Yes. Um, <laughs> so, uh, but anyways, do you think is Nikki Haley one of those people? Like, does she know that that's a real possibility, kind of an, an outcome of of this race that that she's running? I'm sure she would be just fine with it. There are no shortage of ambitious Republicans, save for Mike Pence. Who won't get offered the vice presidential slot anyway? Um, although he might do it anyway, but, the, but they, they'd all do it. They would all do it, and they'd either do it just because they're ambitious and they want to be president someday, or they'd do it because they would convince themselves that they're going to be the moderating factor that keeps Trump from doing things that he shouldn't be doing, or any number of reasons. But they would all they would all do it. And I'm sure the party elements of the party would beg them to do it. We need somebody in there that's, you know, quote unquote normal and going to stop his worst instincts and, you know, that can sit in a room with him and, you know, and convince him not to do this or that. So they, they'd all do it. Audrey, we have a another Fallberg in the chat. Anna Fallberg says hello. Hi, um, <laughs> who, who Who is that? My sister's named Anna. So I don't know if that's her. Oh, Anna. It's Anna. Yes, <laughs> Yes. Well, I don't know many other fault <laughs> so hi, hi on. Yes. Um, great. Uh, Audrey, the same question to you, kind of what what do you see as the the point of some of these kind of long shot candidates running running their race? Do you think Sarah had a, a good sweep about this last week of kind of the benefits of running for president? Um, and that I think that makes um, Larry Hogan's decision all the more interesting that you know you can run for president and get a book deal and get on tv a ton raise your speaking fee there's really no downside to it anymore um do you think right yeah, yeah i think there ahead. really is no downside um you know the rick perry oops moment is one for the history books obviously but i mean pete Buttigieg, like he went into the race last time around knowing that he wasn't going to win um and he lucked out with the transportation secretary job you know it's not going particularly well for him now <laughs> But um, yeah, I mean, that's why a lot of these people run, I think. Um, you mentioned Carrie Lake, one point on her. I mean, I think she was asked point blank, is she running for president? Is she, does she want to be, um, you know, Trump's running mate? When she was in Iowa recently, I'm pretty sure she went to college there, so correct me if I'm wrong. Um, but she said, you know, I'll do whatever Trump wants me to do. Um, so I think that that would be a really, really particularly fascinating ticket. 
Well, she came in in first place in the VP straw poll at CPAC. So uh, you know how important those those are. Yes. Yes. Exactly. Um, and then that was that was where I think Nikki Haley came in third in that one, and she got booed pretty loudly uh, then. So it's uh, I think understandable why. DeSantis, why Tim Scott, why uh, a lot of Mike Pence, a lot of these other folks decided not to show up to for that event this weekend, even though it it really used to be um, kind of the Mitt Romney won the the straw poll twice, right? At, at CPAC. When he was a severely conservative governor. Yes. Um, a lot can change in, in a decade. Dave, we've got like two minutes left. Uh, either one of you, whoever, uh, talk about that little <laughs> Romney snippet in the Dispatch Politics newsletter uh, from yesterday. That was so exciting. <laughs> Listen, um, you know, they wouldn't say who and, and you know, but the, the NRSC essentially told me that it was a rogue uh, digital vendor, right, outside the building, not on staff. But they created this landing page for WinRed, which is the internet clearinghouse to give money to Republican candidates, it's similar to Act Blue. You go there, you plug in any Democrat, you give money. Same now with WinRed for Republicans. Anyway, there's this landing page for a what we call a joint fundraising committee, where you give money for the NRSC and the 10 Republicans up for re-election in 2024. And uh, there are were profile pictures of every single one of them, except the one for Romney was... This big by compare. Thank you, Audrey. <laughs> Peering over Josh Hawley's shoulder, right? A populist favorite. Um, and it was caught and corrected, but not before one of my sources uh, found it and sent it to me. Anyway, it's just kind of indicative of what's going on in the party. Somebody thought they were playing a joke or a prank, or maybe they created it as a prank and thought they had fixed it. Uh, either way, the NRSC wasn't too happy. Um, I don't think they were too happy with us for reporting it, but that's the, you know, them's the breaks. Um, I, I thought it was hilarious. The Romney people were also not happy about it, by the way, although they, I know this, but they, you know, when I asked them about it, they just sent me to the NRSC to ask questions. So it was just one of those like funny little visual things we were able to report that tells you a little about, a bit about what's going on in the party. But it was also just kind of funny. Yeah. Yeah, it's those are the kind of scoops that you can expect if you sign up for the Dispatch Politics newsletter. You guys are what uh, about a month in at this point? Something like that. Yeah, month, month and a half. Is it? Uh, we we've got a minute left. Kind of, Audrey. What what have your experience with it been? Do you are you, you know? Has it been fun to kind of launch the newsletter, get it up from the ground? What are what unexpected challenges have you guys come across? You know, there haven't been many challenges. I think one of our challenges has been that we've been running too long, which is a good problem to have. But now we're only twice a week and we're going to be ramping up to five days a week, which, uh, you know, that'll be what we'll have your job then. Declan, and we won't get any sleep, Good luck. Um, but it's been fun. We've been reporting a lot of, you know, scoopy stuff in almost every newsletter. So I think and we work really well together. It's been really fun. You know, some people say it's too early to start with campaign reporting, but for us, political junkies it's never too early and it's just so much fun of course yeah um well great thank you everybody for tuning in uh we hope it was a, a fun hour a uh, lot lot we discussed and just a general reminder you can listen to this in a in your podcast feeds tomorrow if you want to replay it or online and uh, sign up for the dispatch politics newsletter and we will see you next week <laughs>